Welcome to the February 2nd, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the safety and efficacy of idacitinib monotherapy in low-risk acute GVHD. Learn how ERG was discovered to be a key transcriptional target in EVI1-driven AML. And define a unique subtype of myeloid neoplasms characterized by germline DDX41 mutations. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Effective Treatment of Low-Risk Acute GVHD with Idacitinib Monotherapy by Aaron Etra from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City and colleagues. Systemic corticosteroids are the primary treatment for acute graft-versus-host disease that develops after an allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. However, this treatment is often associated with complications, including hypertension, osteonecrosis, hyperglycemia, and reduced quality of life. Steroids also increase the risk of serious infections, including bacteremia and sepsis, viral diseases, and invasive fungal infections. Patients with less severe GVHD may be at risk for overtreatment with steroids because dosing typically continues for several months after resolution of symptoms. Two classification systems are used to stratify patients into low- and high-risk categories for GVHD. The Minnesota classification system separates patients into two groups, standard and high-risk, based on the severity of GVHD symptoms at diagnosis. The Mount Sinai Acute GVHD International Consortium, or MAGIC algorithm, uses serum biomarker data to categorize patients into three risk groups, low, intermediate, or high also known as Ann Arbor 1, 2, or 3. The authors analyzed 642 patients in the MAGIC database and biorepository and found that a combination of Minnesota standard risk and Ann Arbor 1 criteria identified a group of low-risk patients, representing about half of all GVHD cases, that had a 12-month risk of non-relapse mortality of only 10%. Ruxolitinib is a JAK-1-2 inhibitor approved by the FDA for the treatment of steroid refractory acute GVHD. It works by inhibiting the JAK-STAT pathway to prevent activation of effector donor T-cells that damage GVHD target organs. Itacitinib is a more selective JAK-1 inhibitor that, unlike ruxolitinib, has not been associated with hematologic toxicities. In a recent Phase three trial of itacitinib versus placebo, in combination with systemic corticosteroids as primary treatment of GVHD, itacitinib showed a favorable safety profile, although it did not significantly increase the overall response rate. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that idacitinib alone would prove to be a safe and effective primary treatment for patients with low-risk GVHD. This hypothesis was tested in a multicenter phase 2 trial conducted between February 2019 and April 2021. Seventy patients with low-risk GVHD were treated with oral idacitinib monotherapy at a dose of 200 mg daily for 28 days responders could receive a second 28-day cycle. Enrolled patients had to be 12 years or older, have an absolute neutrophil count of 500 per microliter or greater, and a platelet count above 20,000 per microliter. 
The median age was 60 years and ranged from 15 to 74. The control cohort consisted of 140 matched patients from the MAGIC database who were transplanted between January 2015 and March 2021 and developed low-risk GVHD that was treated with the standard of care systemic glucocorticoids. The primary study endpoint was overall response rate at 28 days of treatment, defined as the proportion of patients achieving either a complete or partial response. Secondary endpoints included grade 3 or higher treatment emergent adverse events, serious infections through day 90, the cumulative incidence of relapse at 12 months, chronic GVHD, non-relapse mortality, and overall survival at 12 months. Study findings revealed that significantly more patients responded to idacitinib by day 7 compared to systemic corticosteroids, namely 81% versus 66%. Overall responses at 28 days were very high in both cohorts, with rates of 89% for patients treated with idacitinib and 86% for systemic steroid treatment. The rate of symptomatic flares in these two groups was 11% and 12%, respectively. Moreover, Patients treated with idacitinib developed fewer serious infections within 90 days of treatment initiation due to fewer viral and fungal infections. Treatment with idacitinib was most often discontinued due to hematologic adverse events. Other causes of treatment discontinuation included lack of efficacy or relapse of malignancy. Grade 3 or greater cytopenias occurred at similar rates in both groups, except for leukopenia, which was more common in patients treated with steroids, occurring at a rate of 31% compared to 16%. Overall, idacitinib had a favorable safety profile with a low incidence of grade 3 or higher non-hematologic and non-infectious adverse events. Furthermore, there were no significant differences between the two groups at one year in terms of the rates of non-relapse mortality, relapse, chronic GVHD, or survival. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that idacitinib monotherapy is a safe and effective alternative to systemic glucocorticoids for low-risk GVHD and warrants further investigation. In an accompanying commentary, Joseph Padala from the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute in Tampa, Florida, notes that the findings of ETRA and collaborators point to non-inferiority of idacitinib compared to the standard-of-care therapy. This is based on day 28 overall response rate, the response based on GVHD grade and target organ involvement, time to initial response, durability of response, and risk for treatment failure or GVHD flare. Importantly, subjects treated with idacitinib had a significant reduction in cumulative prednisone exposure compared to controls and a significant reduction in infectious complications. In addition, there was no evidence of worsened long-term outcomes. Pedala is optimistic that future studies employing clinical and biomarker-based tools to provide risk stratification of acute GVHD hold promise to personalize therapy so that the right treatment intensity is delivered to the right patient. He adds that additional progress in the field will require the selection of priority interventions and allied trial designs for risk-adapted therapy. A step in this direction would be the testing of steroid-minimizing or steroid-free regimens, including lower-dose prednisone, serolimus, and idacitinib. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled 
EVI-1 drives leukemogenesis through aberrant ERG activation by Johannes Schmilel from the University of Veterinary Medicine Vienna in Vienna, Austria, and colleagues. The gene for the zinc finger transcription factor EVI-1, which stands for Ectopic Viral Integration Site 1, was first identified as a common insertion site in retrovirally-induced mouse leukemias. EVI-1 expression is restricted to hematopoietic stem cells in normal hematopoiesis and is key for maintaining a self-renewing, undifferentiated state. Leukemias characterized by EVI-1 overexpression are associated with poor prognosis, including a subtype of chemoresistant AML with a two-year survival of less than 10%. The EVI-1 locus can be rearranged by several types of chromosomal alterations that lead to EVI-1 overexpression such as the relocation of enhancers close to the EVI1 gene or the expression of fusion oncoproteins. Established treatments typically fail in patients with EVI1-driven AML. Therefore, there is an unmet need for new and effective therapies. EVI1 contains two clusters of zinc finger domains, separated by a domain that harbors binding sites for co-repressors. It is believed that EVI1 controls lineage-defining transcription factors in myelopoiesis such as PU.1 and CEBP-alpha. However, due to a lack of adequate experimental models, the exact role of EVI1-controlled transcriptional programs and their contributions to leukemogenesis have not been clearly defined. In the current study, the authors employed a panel of conditional disease models to characterize EVI1-dependent transcriptional programs and conducted genome-wide CRISPR screens to uncover critical downstream targets and functional dependencies in EVI1-driven AML. The authors developed a novel mouse transgenic model of RUNX1 EVI1 expression combined with an NRAS G12D mutation, which is frequently observed in EVI1-high AML patients. They also screened AML cell lines that express EVI1 to see which ones are dependent on EVI1 for proliferation and identified HNT34 cells as a suitable model to investigate EVI1-driven AML. To identify genes that are transcriptionally controlled by EVI1, the authors conducted expression analyses after EVI1 knockdown in both the murine model and in the HNT34 cell line. These two experimental settings revealed a core set of genes that were positively controlled by EVI1, including transcription factors and co-regulators, such as BCL11A, CBX6, ERG, HHEX, LYL1, which were also enriched in EVI1-rearranged AML patients. To identify functional EVI1-specific dependencies, the authors next performed genome-wide gene inactivation screens with CRISPR-Cas9 in human and murine EVI1-dependent AML cells and compared their hits with those published previously. Integrating data from their expression analyses and functional screens identified the ETS family transcription factor, ERG, as the only transcription factor directly regulated by EVI1 and essential for the survival of EVI1-driven AML in human and murine models. Validation of these data in ERG knockdown experiments showed that ERG contributes to the myeloid differentiation blockage the anti-apoptotic cell survival effect, and leukemic cell maintenance in both experimental models. A rescue experiment in the RUNX1 EVI1 murine model revealed that ERG ectopic expression 
was sufficient to overcome the effects of EVI1 knockdown on cell survival and to restore the expression of 34% of EVI1 target genes. Mechanistically, EVI1 was shown to bind and regulate the open chromatin state of the ERG locus at an enhancer shown to be controlled by a transcriptional complex referred to as the heptad complex. This includes transcription factors that combinatorially regulate genes in hematopoietic stem cells, such as RUNX1, GATA2, and EDO2. Finally, analysis of RNA-seq data from AML patient samples with EVI1 rearrangements showed that expression levels of EVI1 and ERG were highly correlated. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that the major oncogenic functions of EVI1 are mediated through aberrant transcriptional activation of ERG, and that targeting this regulatory axis may provide a rational therapeutic strategy for EVI1-driven AML. In an accompanying commentary, Cecile Lopez from the University of Cambridge in Cambridge, UK, and Thomas Mercier from INSERM U1170 at the Gustav Roussy Institute in Paris Note that the results from this study extend the central oncogenic role of ERG in human acute leukemia associated with poor prognosis, including an aggressive subset of MLL rearranged AML. Other studies have indicated that ERG also has functional relevance for EDO2 GLIS2 positive AML, as well as for some subtypes of ALL. Lopez and Mercier further note that future studies should determine the precise combinatorial interplay between EVI1 and heptad transcription factors. This includes those important for normal HSC biology and altered in EVI1 and ERG dependent AML along with the relative contribution of other cofactors that control locus-specific transcriptional activation of a stemness program. The finding that EVI1 rearranged AML cell lines were not equally sensitive to EVI1 knockdown is also very interesting. Of note, only HNT34 cells harbored an additional SF3B1 mutation that controls the expression of an EVI1 isoform with a 6-amino acid insertion close to the zinc fingers and with an enhanced self-renewal stimulation property. Whether this isoform is responsible for enhanced ERG expression remains to be studied. Finally, Lopez and Mercier highlight the therapeutic implications of these findings. While direct targeting of the driver EVI1 oncogene may constitute one strategy, they believe that specific inhibition of ERG activity will likely be of wider therapeutic interest for several subtypes of aggressive AML. With this goal, ERG pharmacological inhibitors are being developed, and ERG protein structure-based strategies may also allow novel approaches using inhibitory peptidomimetics. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Germline DDX41 Mutations Define a Unique Subtype of Myeloid Neoplasms by Hideki Makishima from the Kyoto University in Kyoto, Japan, and colleagues. In 2016, the World Health Organization started classifying myeloid neoplasms according to germline predisposition based on the growing evidence that acute myeloid neoplasms have recurrent inherited pathogenic traits. Recognizing germline predisposition can impact testing among family members, dictate cancer surveillance strategies, as well as donor selection for allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation.
germline mutations in the DDX41 gene are found in 2 to 5% of patients with AML and MDS and are associated with a late-onset disease that peaks in the 6th and 7th decades of life. DDX41 encodes a deadbox-type RNA heliocase involved in various aspects of RNA metabolism and myeloid differentiation. Several important questions currently remain to be answered, including the frequency of both germline and somatic DDX41 variants in different subtypes of myeloid neoplasms and their impact on outcomes. The relative incidence of DDX41 variants compared to other known risk variants and the magnitude of the risk of developing a myeloid malignancy. Finding answers to these questions is critical to improving the management of patients with DDX41 mutated MDS and their family members. Makishima and an international group of collaborators analyzed a large cohort of patients with myeloid neoplasms to identify the spectrum of common pathogenic DDX41 germline variants across multiple ethnicities, estimate the risk of developing myeloid neoplasms in those harboring DDX41 mutations, and characterize their unique genetic and clinical features. The study enrolled a total of 346 patients with DDX41 pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline variants and or somatic mutations from a cohort of more than 9,000 patients with myeloid neoplasms treated at 56 sites across seven countries. 49% of the original cohort were Japanese. Patients in the overall cohort had either AML, including therapy-related or secondary AML, MDS, MDS-MPN and MPN. In addition, 525 first-degree relatives of DDX41 mutated and wild-type patients were studied. 557 identified DDX41 variants were classified into germline and somatic variants. The germline variants were further classified as either pathogenic or variants of unknown significance. Variants were detected and identified using established sequencing and analysis protocols. The authors found germline DDX41 variants that were pathogenic or likely pathogenic in 293 patients. Of these, 159 acquired secondary somatic DDX41 mutations. Notably, pathogenic or likely pathogenic DDX41 variants accounted for approximately 80% of known germline predisposition to myeloid neoplasms in adults. These risk variants were 10 times more enriched in Japanese patients compared to the general Japanese population. The risk of developing a myeloid neoplasm in patients harboring a pathogenic or likely pathogenic DDX41 variant was negligible up to age 40, but rapidly increased to 49% by 90 years of age. Furthermore, the risk was significantly higher in males compared to females, with an odds ratio of 20.7 compared to 5.0. Interestingly, subjects with myelodysplastic syndrome and truncated DDX41 variants, which accounted for as many as two-thirds of germline DDX41 variants overall, rapidly progressed to AML. Furthermore, the co-mutation patterns at diagnosis and at progression to AML were significantly different between subjects with DDX41 mutations and wild-type subjects. However, none of the co-mutations had any influence on clinical outcomes. Moreover, the authors found that the TP53 mutations did not adversely affect patient outcomes and that their poor prognostic effect was completely mitigated by the presence of DDX41 mutations. 
Finally, risk stratifications, including one based on the revised molecular international prognostic scoring system, did not influence patient outcomes. Based on these findings, the authors conclude that DDX41 mutated MDS defines a unique subtype of myeloid neoplasms. In an accompanying commentary, Peter Truong from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, highlighted key takeaways and clinical implications of this study. First, that truncation status of DDX41 variants can inform whether the variants are germline in nature, since somatic DDX41 mutations are almost exclusively non-truncating. Second, that truncating DDX41 variants are associated with faster progression to leukemia, but that truncation status itself is not a predictor of overall survival. Third, that the lifelong risk of developing myeloid neoplasms from a pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline DDX41 variant is approximately 50%, with almost a two times higher penetrance in males. Fourth, that screening for DDX41 mutational status in patients with myeloid neoplasms is of vital importance since classical stratification and TP53 mutational status do not necessarily align with the prognosis of DDX41 mutant MDS. And fifth, that DDX41 mutated myeloid neoplasms are more responsive to hypomethylating agents. Beyond these conclusions, the findings by Makishima and collaborators also raise several important questions including why DDX41 mutant MDS cases have lower frequencies of other mutations commonly observed in wild-type cases, and why carriers of monoallelic germline DDX41 variants have higher chances of acquiring a secondary somatic DDX41 mutation that can lead to the development of myeloid neoplasms. Truong concludes that DDX41 mutational status will have widespread implications on the diagnosis and management of DDX41-related myeloid neoplasms and genetic counseling of affected family members. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.